Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, the American Shoreline Podcast Network is an incredible assemblage of coastal professionals covering a great range of topics, and we are going to announce a new show today to really expand the offerings on ASPN, and I couldn't be more thrilled to introduce Tamara Khan, the host of our newest podcast, The Wave Makers Podcast, a Blue Tech Frontier show, Tyler. That's right, Peter. Well, by this point, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you know that I am a major ocean geek. And uh, early in my childhood, I remember watching those Bob Ballard movies on uh, National Geographic. And of course, he's out on a research vessel and he's using Alvin the submersible and he's using uh, an ROV like Jason was with its name. And it's yeah. like one of the first ROVs. And one of the things I remember from a very young age is just how important and how integrated new technology is to the ocean realm. And you know, Peter, I'm a big nerd. I even study yeah. the old technological stuff going back to the age of sail. I mean, truly, yeah. you can look at how ships evolve and you can look at how technology and our relationship with the ocean are really hand in hand. Uh, and it's not always, you know, shipborne. It's also on the coast with how we yeah. armor and how we protect and how we nourish and uh, protect our shores. So uh, we have a great show here that we're adding to the network. Yeah. all about the blue tech frontier. This is the science and technology intersection with the ocean and coast. This is where yeah. new technologies and new ways of approaching these problems that we've had forever and are increasingly having now with climate change are being addressed. And boy, it's exciting. I mean, this is like the San Francisco tech scene meets the coast yeah it's going to be you know the, the tools of the trade in ocean exploration back to the chronometer in the sailing days it's always been about technological innovation as the foundation of ocean exploration and it's exploding in this era right now and it's absolutely essential that we have a show to cover this emerging and exploding area of ocean tech science and so we couldn't be more thrilled to introduce to our audience the host of this show Tamara Khan, who is the host of our latest show, The Wave Makers Podcast on ASPN. Absolutely, Peter. This is going to be a great show. Uh, all my favorite things. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Tamara, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast Network, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Great to have you on. Thank you very much, Peter and Tyler. This is too cool. Well, Tamara, uh, we need to learn a little bit more about you. So let's start with your early life. I think that's a great place to start. How did you become interested initially in this ocean and coastal space. What is what is the origin of your uh, how you ended up here right now? 
It's a great question. Um, I guess I grew up partially, I was born in South Africa. So I spent a lot of years on the coasts there. I lived in Cape Town, which is just a beautiful, beautiful city. Um, grew up going to the beach. I had parents that just always wanted a vacation at the beach. We never went to mountains. Well, that's not true. We just never went to wintry mountains. So we were always coastal vacationers or residents. And I love, love, love the ocean. I was thrown into the water when I was probably a few months old, and I've been going ever since. So I have a passion for, for the ocean and water in general. And I, I think it was Jacques Cousteau said that people protect what they love, so it all started there. Absolutely. I would just love to hear maybe a, a little memory vignette of what those beaches and oh. South Africa are like. Oh, they're just beautiful. I guess uh, my favorite was we'd go with our family to a place called Plettenberg Bay, which is just beautiful sand and the the water is... I, just the perfect temperature because it's not like you're getting in a bathtub, so it's not too warm, it's not too cold. There's waves. We don't like flat. We, you know, we, we need some waves to play in. And it's just a small kind of town. The Southern Ocean, very <laughs> powerful part of the world's oceans. Um, how old were you when uh, you left South Africa? How much time did you spend there in your early life? There was a little bit of back and forth, but I guess we settled in America when I was 12 in the okay. U.S. Great. And I'll tell you that one of the memories I have, it's just come to me, was that I always asked my parents where the waves came from. And of course, they gave me this story that there were whales at the, you know, the tip of Africa and they were making, <laughs> making the waves. So when I was old enough to go and we went to the, the Cape Point, which is where you stand on the tip of Africa and see the Indian and the Atlantic Ocean meet. We got there and there were no whales. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it's a good way to talk to a youngster, though, about the waves and make it interesting <laughs> without having to explain the lunar cycle. <laughs> yeah, now that I know the, the truth, it's, it's a lot more complicated. <laughs> so you get to America and you end up going to the University of Texas in geology, I believe, geological sciences. Tell us about your professional choice in college what drew you to geological sciences well I actually went to UT and I started in aerospace engineering for a couple wow. of years I, I thought I want to I want to go to the to the moon I want to go to space wow be, be a, the first woman on Mars or whatever I, I thought could happen but uh, studying aerospace I, I, I got to tell you I didn't enjoy it that much mm. So. It's lonely out there in space. <laughs> a lot of math. It's true. There's a lot of math. I had a, you know, proclivity for math and sciences, but I I found myself like not enjoying. My roommates would come home from their classes and say how much they loved what they were learning and the people they were studying with. I I went exploring for something else and I found geology. Nice. Well, I, you know, this is we have now spoken to uh, let's see. We we just spoke to a paleooceanographer. We oh, did, cool. and uh, of course, and, and she's a geologist too in her undergraduate days. So, what got you into geology? I mean, from from aerospace, which is to me again, this is brings me back to our last one. But aerospace is a very forward thinking. I'm thinking, like you said, going to Mars. It's the it's a future tech to geology, which is like studying ancient 
deep time. What, 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 how did you do that switch? It was like the study of life and where it came from that really got me. We had a wonderful professor at UT, Dr. Leon Long, who he literally jumped on the table and acted like um, a quadruped for us and showed us <laughs> he, and he illustrated evolution. And I mean, he's not a young man, so it was pretty impressive. And I just, I, I would go to lab and enjoy it. And there was pretty cool tech to look at the rocks. I, I, I just loved every moment of, of the life science of it. And then I had another professor that inspired the sort of looking at the geologic time scale and how the earth has evolved in itself, like not just life, but the rocks and how it's formed. And it's just so interesting. And it really helps us understand what's happening today and what's going to happen. And I like that aspect. Fabulous. So when you complete your degree at UT in geological sciences, uh, how would how did your professional career begin? What did you go into professionally? Um, actually, <laughs> I tried to avoid going to the oil industry because that's what most geologists did at the time. Down here in Texas, oh, you know, UT's uh, very well known in in uh, ocean, I mean, uh, oil and gas engineering and geology. That's a big deal yeah. here in Texas where you came from. So you didn't want to go into the oil and gas industry. So what'd you end up doing? I found a, finally found a position here in Austin with a small company that was using this brand new tech, this electromagnetic exploration method. And they were at the time looking at a lot of um, freshwater deposits and geothermal activity and I got involved in looking at their data and they I mean they really trained me from scratch which was super wonderful of them so I got into geophysics with them um, and they were actually eventually bought by a big uh, oil service company Schlumberger oh yeah and went ahead and kept going with that career and found that I really enjoyed working in the oil industry. The exploration industry, the energy industry was super fascinating, amazing people. I worked, can I go into my, my ship work? No, <laughs> that, yeah, I, 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 precisely. This is exactly where I want to go. So yeah, you, you kind of, you wanted to avoid the oil and gas industry, but you through kind of a back door, you end up in it and you end up liking it. Can you just elaborate on kind of what, what was it? How did that shift happen? Oh, I, I think I just, it was fascinating to me how like people had developed this technology and I really got to learn the history of kind of seismic exploration and where this electromagnetic technology had been used before and how somebody thought, oh wait, we can re reapply it here instead. And um, just some brilliant minds and the computer software was really neat to me. I got to help test some in, in-house software, which was fun. And yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, but perfect person I, for the hosting this show. I well clearly. And I just yeah. want, this is what I wanted. I pin pin on is, uh, you are in to tech. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ladies yeah. and gentlemen. I guess I'm a tech nerd. <laughs> I didn't yeah. even realize. From the time you were a little girl, it seems like you were drawn to, like you said, in geology, the lab uh, had cool tech in it for the, in the geology lab, and that kind of made interested you. Yeah. What is your when you were a little kid? Were you playing with you know little pieces of technology? What, what's your like 
root there in being interested in new technologies? Yeah, we we were definitely playing with well, Lego and building things. I think um, I've we had a little old school electronics set that I probably didn't understand fully at the time, but I liked messing with it. Um, I'm I'm trying to remember. I actually also played. I wanted to be a doctor for a while, and the stuff I liked about being a doctor was the stethoscope and the and the you know digital thermometers when those showed up. It was it, I, you're right. making me realize I, that's what I liked. <laughs> Has been so. Tell us a little bit about seismic exploration and what did you call it? Electromagnetic. Mm-hmm. What I don't understand that introduce us to what you were doing professionally when you when you eventually got into your career. Sure. Um, well, when I first started, the superb people that I worked with were training me in very basic modeling. So I wasn't even collecting or acquiring the data. I was just taking the data and trying to build a picture of what the geolog- geologic layers looked like subsea. Mm-hmm. The stratigraphy so, of the yeah. seafloor. You got uh, what it. What the layers are. Yep. And how can you detect that? What is the instrumentation? What is electromagnetic seismology? Oh, man, we're going to have to throw it yeah, back. Yeah, sorry. No, no problem. <laughs> so um, it, it's very funny because it's very hard to explain a lot of the stuff that goes on without being on the ship. And I remember them trying to explain to me before I went offshore. And it was just beyond my imagination. But basically, we were using these instruments that were about a meter by a meter square, and they had these long arms. So it was these long arms that had electrodes on the end. They're silver, silver chloride electrodes that rest on the seabed, and they're measuring the Earth's magnetic field and the perturbations in the field. Right. And then... So that's that's called magnetotelluric. There's a magnetotelluric field. And then <laughs> there's this particular technology was they figured out how to put out a signal, an electromagnetic signal, and control it. So you could tune your wave, the waveform, to be whatever you wanted, to penetrate whatever layers to a, de- a specific depth and and look for something specific in wow. the stratigraphy. So the disruption of the signal would indicate something about the character of the sedimentary layer or the rock layer that you are interested in? Yeah, you know, I'm sorry, I probably skipped over that part. It's been a long time since I explained this, but the resistivity of the rock layer. So different um, media have different resistivity values. So... Okay. It means like electronic, electromagnetic waves travel through different, um, through water, through granite, through salt differently. So you can measure the, the speed it's traveling through there and, and you, you get certain parameters, not parameters. Do you feedback. get like, is it, is, is it, are you looking, is it visual on the screen? Is it like an MRI? Yeah. It is you're good for you. It's like taking an MRI of the subsurface in a lot of ways. So, so you're sitting there in the command center with a monitor <laughs> and, and a dial. Um, not exactly. <laughs> Maybe a couple of dials. <laughs> it is really cool. There are a lot of screens. You get into the, the control room on the ship or the instrument room, as we call it, and there's like 12 monitors and... You know, one of my friends used to ask me, is, is there a light that just flashes red when something goes wrong and a siren? 
not not quite, but we do have issues like that. So, um, so you spent several years <laughs> offshore on seismic ships. Is that the right word for the ships? Or that what were they? I'm sorry. To- I actually never went on a seismic vessel. I went on um, electromagnetic survey vessels. Okay, there you go. <laughs> um, tell us about that time and how long you were offshore. Where did you go around the world? Oh, um, I would go for five-week spans, uh, uh, originally six weeks, and then, thank goodness, went down to five weeks, and we would go everywhere. I was in the initially off the coast of Norway, uh, did West Africa for a while, been to Brazil, and other uh, Uruguay, South America, so Malaysia, India, um, I'm forgetting, Gulf of Mexico, of course. Uh, yeah. Wow. And so... How would that work? I mean, just uh, would you sail to those destinations or would you fly there and the ship would be waiting? How would that work? It's pretty cool. It's that they'd fly us mostly to where we needed to be. But there were times, so we've done some transits or I've been on the vessel for some transits from Norway over to St. John's, Canada, um, which was a really fun one because I was looking everywhere for icebergs and you know, I noted when we went over where the Titanic had sunk. And, wow. And uh, another cool one was going down from the Gulf of Mexico to Rio de Janeiro, um, which meant that I crossed the equator. So yeah. um, Triton swore me in as a shellback, which That's was cool. right. <laughs> There's a ceremony when you cross the equator for the first time on board ship. Um, so I would assume that these ships are contracted by oil and gas companies who are trying to gather data on potential future... Uh, deposits or reservoirs of oil or gas who who were you can you say who you were typically working for or was it a variety of companies or did you know as an uh, as a scientist on board oh I I knew most of the time because I was often working directly with the client they often had a rep on board or somebody shoreside that we were talking to Um, so we I we worked for all kinds of companies I mean Shell was a big proponent of electromagnetics which was great ExxonMobil was involved when they first started testing this stuff offshore for oil and gas. Um, we did a lot of multi-client work, which meant that we were collecting it and then selling it to, to multiple uh, companies later, depending on where they needed data. So I got to ask this. I don't know if this is possible. That I don't know if you can tell us this, but uh, so you're working as a seismic a, a seismologist. Is that That's not the right. Electromagnetic survey ship yeah so, um was there a point in this many years how many, how long were you doing this uh, uh offshore around the world you know it was a total of 10 years i think i did about wow. four took a little break and went back and did more okay so. what was the coolest discovery you ever made can you tell us oh man you know that might have been it's hard to say. I, I don't. I don't think I was involved in any crazy discovery. I was involved when we'd like. The, my favorite part of this particular technology was actually that we were able to say, very specifically, don't you know? Don't look here. There's nothing here. Okay. And and it had very good resolution, horizontal and and vertical resolution. So, I uh, I was able to sort of corroborate when they they'd get a dry well. Okay. Which to me means it saves a, a well from being drilled for nothing. So I really like that part. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I, I would just want to hear a little bit more. I mean, five weeks out at sea in the 
deep blue sea. Yeah. Um, is this a big? How many? How many souls are aboard a, <laughs> a vessel like this? And and you know, what's your role on board? I'm sure there's a captain and first mate and everything. What's? How do you sh- shake out in the in the crew? Yes, um, there was a technical crew that I was part of that was usually, so our company would have maybe 16 people, like eight positions that because it was a 24-hour operation, 24-7, there's the offshore manager, the party manager, and he would run the operation. And then everybody that was, I was the geophysicist on board and there'd be someone opposite me. So I'd work a 12-hour shift, and they'd work the other 12 hours. And then every other position, whether it was the instrument engineer or uh, the mechanical engineer, there's guys on the deck. Um, And then there's the ship's crew, which is like the captain and the engineers and um, the people making the vessel go. But we were very, in this particular survey operation, everybody was very tied together because... The ship had to be maneuvered carefully. We were often towing the the device that put out the signal I mentioned. The array? Is that what it's yeah, called? Yeah. In Seismic, it's an array. Okay. We had a, a source. We just called it the source because there was just one long the one. The source. I like that. <laughs> it is. It's very sci-fi. Towing the source. <laughs> yeah. I grew up watching The Abyss, you know. It was, it was cool. There's another good technical uh, ocean uh, mm-hmm. reference so the the technology is you put an instrument on the seafloor this is that right this meter by meter cube with mm-hmm. the sensors on it you drop this down to the seafloor uh activate it i assume it sends out a signal um how deep is the water how how is this deployed how how is that done i've got to think this is some pretty deep water off of norway or off of india or the other places that you were working yeah the i think the deepest i ever worked in was 3500 meters which i couldn't even tell you except in meters because i was okay Ten thousand uh, plus feet there you go you know deep yeah pretty deep i mean the abyss <laughs> yeah the abyss so you put the, down the, is there one how many of these would you put down the seafloor and how do you find them how do you pick them up are they tethered is all good questions i'm terrible at explaining this so you we put out like an array of 100 or 130 some some fleets we had were like 200 wow it was fun for me because i started in 2005 when we maybe had 16 or so and we'd have to put them out sort of in a grid pattern generally and you you pick them back up and move them so you like shift the grid slowly but surely okay by 20 or 2012 we had 200 and they were like a little army on the seabed and the cool thing is so we would drop them over the side with a crane and then you there they have a compacted sand anchor so they sink to the bottom Hmm. and then they have all this cool tech on them like a, a little receiver that you can send a signal to that burns a little wire so that it's released from its anchor. It's like tethered to the anchor. Wow. And then it comes back up. It floats back up because most of it is actually just buoyancy. Got it. And then it's got the sensors on it. So it floats back up and we could do this at night because it had a little light on it. So it would be blinking and the ship would have to pull alongside it. And the guys would actually use a grappling hook in, in the old days. They would throw a rope with a They'd grappling hook. It. Yeah, <laughs> it's like deadliest catch. It, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. was, and people competed. It was super fun. I uh, 
I had a ball. I got to go on the deck every so often, and I have a great picture of me throwing this grappling hook and uh, wearing my cool green job. helmet. Yeah. What a great job. So if you, I mean, it's a big place, the ocean floor. So you're trying to survey a particular area. If you had 200 of these instruments, what size area would those be deployed over? Is it, a, is it you know, miles and miles of yeah. seafloor that you're covering with the instrumentation? It's a, it's a big block of... Uh, kilometers by kilometers kind of okay area and it it would have there's a lot that leads up to that which i later got to work in like the permitting side of things huh. and how to how to design the survey so you're you know they have an idea of what they're looking for subsurface okay and you gotta know kind of the angles and the geophysics of it to to hit the right targets got it so how deep of a signal can you how far down into the seafloor can you explore with this instrumentation oh it depends what you're using but you can get down to the moho which oh i i'm gonna have to is it can you go down thousands of feet of rock layer Yep, yep, definitely. So the um, power of this signal must be pretty pretty strong to uh to get to send a signal that deep, record the data. Is the data brought up on board in real time or is it is it recorded in this instrument and then you download it once you bring it aboard? You got it. You've you've obviously talked to some people before, huh? No, I'm just guessing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just guessing. No, there's no research on this show. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, um, they, there's a data recorder on board the little receiver, we call it, the device that goes on the seabed. So it sits down, it's just recording onto, it used to be a little sand disk, two gigabyte sand disk, and it would come back up and then I'd be given the disk and I had to download the data or or there's an engineer. floppy drive. So yeah, no, it's it? not <laughs> really? real time. You're not tethered to these things in real time. That's no. interesting. I think when I left, they were testing, trying to figure out a way to do it. But uh. there's no way to get that signal from yeah. you know through 2,000 meters of water to the to the vessel. So, so you do 10 years as an offshore electromagnetic surveyor, I guess is what we could say. And uh, it sounds like a great job, a great career. An I would adventure. assume, yeah, you had moved up. I would assume professionally, uh, but then you shift gears. What, what happened? What? Why did that particular chapter of your life come to a close? Oh well, I'll, you know, the first time I I stopped working on a ship, I really decided I needed to settle down, be on the, on shore, and and then I got sent to Brazil to live there for a while and work in the office and. Uh, did some work in Norway and and even a little bit in India, and wow, I'm that's pretty cool. I know. <laughs> firstly, you miss the boat; like it's really fun to the the camaraderie and the way of life out there is pretty appealing. You don't have a cell phone ringing at you all the time. That aspect of it's pretty nice. So there are some really neat things about it. There's also it's hard your way during birthdays and anniversaries you miss weddings and friends things so it's uh there was an appeal to stopping but um i went back to the ship and found myself after a few years feeling not as um not as inspired the work wasn't wasn't as meaningful and it was seeing things in like port cities that were just there basically we'd pull in and there'd be plastic floating all over the place 
Um, there'd be trash and I, it got a little depressing to see just, you know, how bad things were being the, the one memory that sticks out that I know I was talking to Tyler about was way off the coast of Africa. I was sitting there one day and looked out my little porthole and this plastic like chips packet floated by. Um, there was nothing else around, just that one bag. And this, the sea was so still and there was this bag all salt stained and it, it had been there for a while. And I just thought, how did it even get out here? So it really, that, that moment really hit me as I got to go find out a little more. I, I was living back in Texas at the time when I wasn't on the ship, I was in Texas. And there was a lot of, you know, questions about climate change and global warming. And I felt like I'm a data girl. I have to go see the data for myself. So I went to find a program and I did at uh, the Scripps Institution of Oceanography to go and look at data and learn what was happening on a broader sense. So, Wow. So you, you say, I'm, I'm going back to school. Yep, that was and you found your program there at Scripps. Uh, obviously, Scripps, a, a, a favorite uh, <laughs> American coastal and ocean uh, renowned institute, renowned globally, hugely significant. Uh, we love our ocean institutes here on ASPN, contributing to our understanding in, in just tremendous ways. Um, and what a cool experience that you got to go to Scripps. What was that like? I mean, I've uh, describe your first day walking on campus. Oh, well, I, I have to tell you quickly that the instrumentation that we used in my first job was actually developed at Scripps. How about that? So um, I saw the little label on the, you know, on the receiver that said Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And I was, I, I looked it up, which wasn't really even Google back then, but I looked it up and I, <laughs> <laughs> right. I saw the picture and I was like, I'm going there. <laughs> yeah, be less. You know, one of our other hosts, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, also a graduate of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I don't know if it was his master's or his PhD. I think it might have been both. his PhD. Both, both, yeah. both, yeah. And it's a it is a renowned scientific institution. So you really make this big change emotionally, mentally, professionally to really t- firsthand try to understand what's happening in the seas and the ocean and in the climate. Tell us about your degree program. Oh, I, I mean, I feel super privileged to have found that program. Same as to be on this show, because I, I, I think it was Tim that introduced us. He did indeed. And, and I really, yeah, it's, I appreciate that very much. Um, so the program Scripps had going was they, they had just started a climate science and policy master's of advanced studies. Um, they had, they already have a very successful program in um, biodiversity and conservation, um, marine biodiversity and conservation, the MBC program. And they started this climate science and policy program. So um, I went there to, to get an idea about the climate science and the policy side attracted me because I was super technical and scientific. I knew nothing about po- policy and my government knowledge, I'm still working on it, so. I just love your instinct to round yourself out. I find that Thank to be you. very cool. You know, a lot of a lot of folks specialize. They, they go deeper. You could have doubled down on your 
on your like analytical scientific background and become a super scientist, mm-hmm. but you round yourself out a little bit. That that was that a deliberate decision um, in kind of building out your career in a different way. Yeah. Well, is is any of my decisions are they <laughs> deliberate? Um, sure, they are. I'm not the best planner in the world, but I I just have a broad interest, and I think it's really nice to hear your perspective because I could have kept building on what I'd already done, but to me, it was more interesting to know the other side and put all the pieces together. So. So you spend, you get your master's degree in climate science is and policy mm-hmm. is the degree. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you graduate from Scripps and uh, what direction did that take you in? Um, it was 2018 and I, I'm very happy to say I, I found a wonderful position in San Diego working with a nonprofit there that uh, basically supported blue technology companies. So companies that were doing things in sustainable ocean and water um, technology. So what's the name? Can you tell us the name of the nonprofit? Sure. It's, it's now called TMA blue tech and uh, they are, they sort of the, the goal they have is to lead the, the cluster of companies that exists in San Diego to boost the economy there based on those ocean and water technologies. There's a lot going on in San Diego. It's a coastal city. They've got a home of Scripps, home of Scripps. They got all these institutions, big big naval base, big naval base down there. Mm -hmm. Um, So you, you get into an incubator, kind of a a tech, a blue tech uh, company or nonprofit organization that is trying to support, I would assume, innovative companies developing new marine technology. Is that a fair summary of the of the work? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, it, not so much an incubator. We, we we didn't do the investment and funding side, but okay. definitely supporting them and, and promoting them. Well, I've got to say, uh, so I'm, I'm, I assume that your initial exposure with some of these groups and new technologies probably happened while you were at Scripps and then kind of continued through. But um, what you're, you're a curious person, as you said, what kind of caught what uh, lit your fire in terms of this kind of blue tech space off the bat? What what about it was obviously you love your technology, but in this space in particular, what was what lit your fire? Well, the first thing that happened was it was really neat to see that my background applied. And so the things that I had learned and the people I'd worked with, like these were the people that were going on to do innovative things and the things that we were using on the ship, everything from connectors to the cabling to the, to the data recorders, they were, um, they were all being developed and advanced and there were just so many cool people to talk about doing all these neat things. And then there were bigger things like robots underwater that were going to be helping to maintain things or clean the bottoms of ships or maintain windmills or I, I don't know. Then it was just the I, everyone loves, loves a robot. I have been actually <laughs> proposing that we do a robot of the month on on your show because I think marine robots are just really blowing up. They they are for sure. Um, there's a lot of jobs that you know. Once we were in a, a dry dock with a ship, and I watched these guys in scuba suits dive under our vessel 
and they had to align the little rails that were going to help us roll into the dry dock once they drained the water. And I was like, ugh, what? I, I'm a scuba diver, but what a yuck job. So now they wouldn't do that. It'd be like someone, something that wasn't at risk and wasn't a problem. It can now be done with a robot. With a robot. Well, I think we've found the best host possible for the Wavemaker podcast, Tyler, with the background that you have as a, as a, a marine geophysicist and a, and a scientist, and then into this blue technology uh, organization that you work with in Scripps, um, and really on the cutting edge of the development of marine technology. Um, this is such a fascinating universe of... Uh, uh, of in 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 coast in the coastal professional world to be in the innovative space for marine technology and that's really the focus of this new podcast Tyler that's why I think it's such a great addition to the network absolutely and I know that you have big plans to talk to all sorts of interesting people from the interesting companies working on you know as you said there's just so many different areas where technological advancement applies here and Peter, just as a quick aside, I'm, what I'm reminded of just, you know, uh, some of the shows that we've done um, that involve technological advancement. But we did the show on uh, the mapping of the Marianas Islands. Yes. Uh, by air, which was, that was really a, a cool show. And we also did a show on ropeless fishing technology. Yeah. Uh, for lobster pots up in Maine, which, you know, you can imagine if you've been following our show here and following the issue, the, these vertical lines are the are the problem. And uh, as you said, you can have a, a transponder s send a signal to your device, be it a lobster trap or a whatever you call that thing, the source. <laughs> the <laughs> badass I love the source. <laughs> the whatever that, yeah. the receiver, you know, it's similar thing and have it return to the top and be recoverable uh, in a smart way. This is, you know, these are every, as our society and our the, kind of the machines, the technologies that we rely on become more and more complicated. Each sub little piece becomes you know, a, a thing that can evolve too. And it has its own technological kind of universe inside of it, which is very cool. Anyway, tell us a little bit about what you're hoping to explore here on the Wavemakers podcast. That's exactly it. There's so many pieces that I don't know about. And every time I talk to someone, I learn about what their technology does. And I'm like, oh, wow, I should have known that that was happening, but I did not. And I, I want everyone else to get that opportunity to, to learn about these pieces. The ocean is really important and there's so much that it gives us and it actually does. I mean, I, I just have to say this because I think a big part of this for me is, is getting the word out there for people to know that it's not just a hopeless situation. There's all these solutions and people are developing really neat stuff. So... It, and it matters. It matters to everybody. Your every second breath you take is thanks to the ocean. Um, I, I happily explain that further and how the oxygen's coming from the ocean, but it's off topic. And then no, it's <laughs> not. It's true. I mean, uh, phytoplankton and photosynthesis in the in the ocean contributes. They say fifty to seventy percent of the atmospheric oxygen is produced in marine uh, photosynthetic. Uh, plants and and phytoplankton the tiny stuff and so it's true every other breath you take is an ocean or originated breath 
And as with each passing day, it seems, we run a new story on Coastal News Today explaining how new science is is uh, shows that the ocean is in, is more important in, in more complicated ways, that it's capturing the carbon from the atmosphere and it's the heat sink for the planet. And, yeah. you know, we, we, the, we are the blue planet. We are the blue planet. Make no mistake about it. Yeah, yeah 71% of the, the Earth's surface is covered by ocean and 30% of that carbon dioxide is going into the ocean. So it's definitely helping us and we want to understand it better. So even the little, you know, measuring the temperature of the ocean at the surface of the ocean is important. And it took a lot of innovation to figure out how to do that. Um, now they've got fancier and fancier ways to monitor the temperature of the ocean, which again matters to everybody because it helps predict the weather and not just long-term climate, but you know, your daily weather. Um, there's lots of different things going on with plastics in the ocean. I know that we talk about that a lot. That's, you know, when when you start to eat fish with plastic in it, I mean, that sounds terrible to me. And th But there's people that have ways of collecting the plastic or better yet, using that plastic. Um, there's other things coming from the ocean that are important to us, whether it's seaweed. I know I'm hoping to have someone on from a bioplastics company mm. that's um, talking about how they're using seaweed to make plastic bottles and plastic replacements. That's cool. Yeah, I really like that one. Um, and, and of course, seaweed is in like everything, makeup, ice cream. You've definitely eaten seaweed. Right. But there's other, other things they can do with it. You know, uh, Leslie Ewing, the host of the Shorewords podcast on ASPN, had Sylvia Earle, the famed oh, oceanographer, cool. on her show in October. And she talked about the challenges that we're facing worldwide and how the ocean is just essential as, as a feature of how we're going to tackle the challenges ahead in climate and plastics and so many other aspects of the issues that we're facing as a world. And uh, this instrumentation and technological development is taking in us into an era of big data, where we're going to have the instrumentation, the remotely operated vehicles, uh, the amount of information that is beginning to be collected about ocean conditions is exploding. And this is why I love this show and why it's important to have this show is this is an, a, a wide open field where there's finally incredible investment, incredible development going on. And I'm just really interested in, in learning all about that through the Wavemaker podcast. So I'm just thrilled that you're coming onto the network to take us into this fascinating world of ocean technology. Thank you, Peter. I, I think you said it there too, is there's a lot of opportunity. So there's um, I've heard you guys mention before on your podcast, The Blue Economy, and that's a huge piece of this is what not only what are we going to do to help the oceans, what are we going to do to help ourselves and keep using the ocean resources sustainably so that future generations can use them, but what are the economic opportunities in the ocean? Yeah, so. that's really, I have to say, that's, that's another component that really gets me going on yes. this because... Uh, my my experience in the American economy right now is that, you know, coming out of the pandemic, staring down uh, climate change. Hey, it can be a little it can be a little dodgy or it's a little sketchy out there. 
who knows if this current you know economic strength that we've experienced can last forever you know there's uncertainty but in the blue economy and this is something that admiral gallaudet really brings in his yeah. show uh, the american blue economy podcast on the american shoreline podcast network is that there is the the opportunities associated with new uh, with addressing climate change, addressing sea level rise, addressing decarbonizing shipping, these equal jobs and good. These are excellent, incredible opportunities for current and future Americans to get into. And I think that that's the other element of this show, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, is that uh, you might learn a thing or two that, that you might end up being involved with in the future. There will be opportunities here to get involved. Uh, that's that's the way I see it. I think so. This, the workforce piece is a really interesting side of things to me because I changed careers and I see all the people that, like people I worked with in the energy industry and their amazing skill sets can absolutely transfer into a, a lot of different things in the blue economy. Um, and then there, I talked to a lot of university students who are very interested in this. Um, they, you know, now, when you say to your parents, I want to be a marine biologist, there's no real reason to say, no, you'll never get a job. <laughs> you will. So. There's That's a right. lot of great professional opportunities emerging uh, in ocean technology. Um, so if you can, uh, you know, kicking off a new show, Tyler, is always an adventure on ASPN. And uh, our hosts go through a process of really defining the message and the focus of their discussions. Can you give, give us an overview of of what topics you think you'll be addressing on your show, or if you know the kinds of guests or guests that you might have uh, on this offering on ASPN. Sure, um, I think we're gonna kick off with a company that's making um, sorbents, which are very often used in the um, construction industry, but also in the, in ports and in um, the oil industry, of course. It's what they use to soak up oil spills. Um, he's making them out of recycled plastic and super fun origin story. Um, Jim Mullins will be joining me from Earthwise. He's, he used to be a professional surfer, actually. So no kidding. Another ocean lover who found a way to help and is really sinking himself into doing it. And it's... It's people like him that I really like talking to because you get to see there's still a struggle to get people involved and aware and investing. So um, I'm really excited to tell those stories through the lens of the people. So the stories of the innovations and the solutions through the through the people. And I'm hoping to kind of get a momentum or help the momentum keep going rather um, and inspire that to me these people are kind of heroes they're very brave explorers like um, to, to help our oceans survive and help us use them help our economy thrive so um, getting back to your question there I have uh, a few energy people whether it's wave energy or um, collecting energy through the temperature changes in the ocean really uh, that one's a really neat one that sounds cool I really love. I'm really getting into, by the way, uh, new energy. So, of course, we've talked about wind, but uh, this new tidal stuff seems to be. I'm seeing a lot on LinkedIn these days. Right on with new ocean stuff, and and uh, actually, to uh, last week's show with Taylor Gells, the Ocean Decade show, Taylor made a comment. She's like, imagine capturing the 
a full moon's energy on the you know the tidal energy of the wow. full moon. I was like, oh man, that that is that's some elevated yeah. hu- human stuff to <laughs> use that. You know what I mean? That's cool stuff. Yeah, we're brilliant minds. Well, it sounds like we're going to get a chance to hear from the cutting edge uh, companies and innovators who are uh, tackling some of these issues uh, on energy production or oil and gas. Uh, responsible well, spill response you know the Huntington Beach spill off of Southern California just in October was a big deal uh, sorbents they're called I mm-hmm. guess uh, to suck up that oil and to make that cleanup process better is the kind of uh, thing we're going to hear about on your show from a wide range of innovative uh, people and companies uh, to educate the public about what's being done to tackle the challenges ahead. It just sounds like a, just a, I can't wait till your show starts. Yeah, I'll get into the robots too, just so you know. Oh, I, I know you will. Um, and uh, before we wrap up, though, there's one, one other thing that I, I want to talk about with you, and that is that um, you're a woman in the STEM space. And uh, I think that this is really great for you to bring this element as well to uh, the show to talk about uh, th- this is, tr- of course, traditionally, when I grew up watching those Bob Ballard documentaries, mm-hmm. you know, there'd be the shows of the shots of the crew down there. And I would say there, every occasionally you would peep a, a lady in the crew. It was mostly men back in those days when uh, Bob was out there. And I am very pleased to say that I have noticed myself just in my brief time working uh, in this space over the past five years, I have noticed uh, more representation from women and other uh, underrepresented people in this community. But could talk a little bit about uh, the importance of, repre- of of having a woman representing kind of this blue technology space and talking about it. Yeah, you read my mind because I was thinking this whole time how grateful I am to be on with people like Taylor Gels and Helen, Helen Broll. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty neat to be hearing other females talk about this kind of topic um but uh i think blue technology and the blue economy in general really lends itself to a very to supporting a very broad and diverse range of people Um, you need all sorts of input and there's a lot of different perspectives that that contribute to to success in these things Um, i spend a lot of time in the beginning of my career working as the only female on the ship. And I, it was fun to see um, over the years there. I think in 2012, there were four of us as opposed to in 2005, there was just me. And um, that was just a pleasure. It's really exciting. It's exciting to talk to women who are, I don't know, just doing the really innovative things that need to get done. Um, I'm reading a super a super book called Parlay, um, The Parlay Effect, which is by Anne Devereaux Mills, and it's all about women's contribution to to you know bring our perspective to make society kind of speed up in these innovative Better. ideas. Yeah, <laughs> you need everybody at the table. You need all these voices. One hundred percent. And it's one of the things that Tyler and I and, and the network together with our house have really put an emphasis on this year is, is ensuring that we have a broad spectrum of perspectives and voices on the network. I think more than 50% of the hosts on ASPN are women. And uh, 
the, uh, the Rising Sea Vo- Voices podcast uh, is a show dedicated to diversity of perspective in coastal science. And uh, uh, so we, we, we think we agree with that, that this is a critical part of what we're trying to do and in, in bringing voices forward. And uh, to have somebody with the rock solid technical background <laughs> that you do as a scientist and people don't really know that women have been working at high levels of technology and engineering for many years now, and it's time that we, these voices are focused on, and and so your perspective is one that we're just so pleased to have on the network, and uh, could could not be happier to bring uh, the the Wave Makers podcast to ASPN and all of our listeners around the world. It's going to be awesome. Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here. Ladies and gentlemen, is Tamara Khan, the host of the Wave Makers podcast on ASPN. It's a Blue Technology Frontier show. We're in the final preparation of launching this show. Tyler, do we know when this thing's kicking off? Not quite yet, but it'll be soon. Okay. It'll be soon. Is it a 2021 launch or are we doing a 2022 launch? I think we're going to try. I think so. I think we're going to try to get her out this year. I hope we do. Uh, Well, it's an an important addition uh, to the spectrum of voices on ASPN to have a show dedicated to ocean technology and science at a time when it's just booming as an area and to have an expert who can take us into this universe and guide us down the path of understanding what's exciting about ocean technology development is just a thrill. So thank you tomorrow for, for joining ASPN and bringing the Wavemaker podcast to the network. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I, I really love your network and I think uh, bringing the tech and the policy sides together is yeah. going to be super interesting. Fantastic, ladies and gentlemen. Tamara Khan, host of the Wavemakers podcast. Welcome to ASPN. Sunlight at dawn, singing while my mouth.